Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, MI3 cracked 200,000 podcast streams recently and one of our all-time top five is backed by, shall we say, popular demand. ANZ CMO Sweeta Mayra, who was a career data and analytics aficionado before moving into marketing a decade ago, is back on the mics today and per usual, she's got plenty of observations that marketers and tech advertising and media types, if they're serious about their careers and business impact, should take on with fervour. Sweeta and her team manage and account for 60% of ANZ's online sales and she's overseen a huge overhaul of ANZ's marketing automation personalization and customer experience tech stack. Last time we spoke, that was well underway, so we'll get an update on that very shortly. But Sweeter is challenging her marketing team and by default industry more broadly to build their technology, personalization and analytics capabilities fast because there's a significant gap on what's required to blend classic strategic brand marketing with the below the line demands of digital communications, customer experience and finding and converting prospects. Sweeter says there is still too much of a binary split among marketers. They either skew to brand building or to digital CX, performance marketing, demand generation, and other below-the-line functions. We'll also tap Sweeter's views on market and media mix modelling, the critical differences in services sector marketing, that is, focusing as much energy and attention on retention and customer experience in the customer backbook, as they say, versus customer acquisition and big ad campaigns. We'll garner her thoughts on the rapidly moving take-up of media attention metrics, why she thinks video not display advertising is optimal, how she's using gaming and gaming influencers to get ANZ's financial wellbeing mantra to the younger set, what's happened with ANZ's in-housing program, and what she makes of this funnel-flipping 95 to 5 argument. In the simplest terms, are there dangers in overweighting to lower sales funnel, demand generation and performance marketing? when 95% of any organization's prospects at any one time are not in the market to purchase, just 5% are. So enough of my ramble. Let's get an update on the worldview of Sweeter Mayra. Welcome, Sweeter. Where do we start? This is a big question. I've got an idea. How about a quick summary and update on what you've been doing really for the last three, four years, this three-pronged marketing agenda you have, which is around reputation, revenue, and relationships. Welcome and let's go. Thank you, Paul. That was a long introduction. Yes, uh, it was. It's a pleasure to be back and congratulations for the 200,000 podcast, No Mean Feet. And I have to say yours is one of my favorites. Do we finish the podcast? I think so. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> now, coming back to the question that you asked, the three-prong agenda. Yes, I continue to be still focused on reputation, revenue and relationships. And we're making good progress on each one of them. On reputation, where we've been focusing our efforts on financial well-being, we've launched new campaigns in both Australia and New Zealand. In New Zealand, behind the platform called We Do How, and in Australia, behind the platform of ANZ for Financial Well-Beings. And we're seeing very good results behind both of them, whether you name it from, you know, top of mind, brand awareness, consideration, equity measures, and, and acquisition, you know, they're all heading in absolutely the right direction. So we continue to be quite bullish about that. On revenue, as you know, uh, we are one of those more fortunate marketing functions where we are directly responsible for all the digital sales end-to-end. And on that, we made good, steady progress. 
continuous growth. We're now driving almost 60%, as you said, of digital sales directly. And for the indirect channels where we help the other businesses deliver sales through our branches, our contact centers, mobile lenders, brokers, et cetera, again, we are making steady progress. So we keep on uh, living up to a promise of delivering the targets that we agree with the business teams, plus minus 5%, idly more often than not ahead of that. And then on relationships, uh, this is where all the fun conversations on MarTech, data stacks, and everything comes in. And we've pretty much finished stitching up what we need to do from a data and technology standpoint. I think we're very close to completion. But more importantly, we started making progress on what I feel is the software required to make progress and or deliver personalization at scale and improve relationship with our customers. And that is the people, processes, systems required to operate and deliver value. So that's happening. And the second thing which I'm quite excited about is how are we building our infrastructure and more importantly, our partnerships, you know, um, with companies like Cash Rewards, which is one of our big investments recently, to offer our customers very relevant offers and services. For example, with Cash Rewards, it's not about buy now, pay later. It's really more about buy now and save now. So we want to do more and more of that for our customers with the help of our various partners. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm going to try very quickly because we have a huge agenda ahead of us. I want to ask you everything that's possible. Let's just start firstly with your your reputation reference, financial well-being. So is it a bit of a crowded space? There's a lot of uh, financial institutions trying to sort of move that way. And so really it's crowded and the task at hand is cut through really. And whether ANZ is getting cut through versus competitors, firstly, I should ask, it's sort of a similar space that a lot of bankers and, and financial services are trying to head to. Is that a fair observation, Sweden? It is definitely one of the key spaces because if you are a banker, and especially in this market, but frankly, even globally, uh, what are you really in the market for if not to help the customers get on top of their money and improve the way they manage their money and improve their financial well-being, right? Because ultimately, financial well-being is about being in control of today, money today, being ready for what comes your way tomorrow and be ready for the shocks like the last two years have shown. So it's, it's to that extent, it's the core. And yes, everyone in some way or form is coming at it. But uh, honestly, when I look at what my peers are doing and what the other businesses are doing, there are not too many of us who are going after this as a core equity platform and what we're trying to stand for directly. Right. Okay. So there is a point of difference here where you, all your energy on reputation and focus is on this particular area. And so getting cut through on that. So how are you benchmarking that, how that's landing in market with customers? So what we know, and again, and that's where from a consumer standpoint, what all the banks have been talking about, it's not that consumers have been historically searching a lot for financial well-being. So that as a term is not well understood. And what we've been trying to do is not just deliver the propositions, but talk about it consistently. So that becomes one of the many well-being concepts that people are interested in. From the data that we've seen, you know, every time we talk about it, when people are searching for financial well-being, ANZ is absolutely on top compared to many of our bigger right. competitors who may also be talking about this space. Right. And I think we were talking earlier, this is a bit of a challenge for you because you're out-muscled on, at least in spend on this and budget. Absolutely. So you've got to do it better. We have to do it better and we have to do it, uh, therefore, consistency, coherence, all products talking about it is becoming quite important. And therefore, if you look at the new campaign, we're not talking about financial well-being just on our you know, brand advertising or transaction and savings product we're talking about on our biggest product, which is home loans. Right. Okay. Let's get to the second leg, which is revenue. 
Now, as you said, marketing has responsibility for sales in this context. And this is a little bit rare for marketers to have a little bit more than just the promotion. You know, we've seen marketing sort of get sidelined to the one of the four Ps, which is promotion. You've got product or at least you've got price and you've got sales here. I guess the question is, how has that sales remit pushed or had to stretch marketing in terms of managing the revenue line, which is not necessarily ubiquitous across the discipline? Yeah. I think the reality is marketing in different companies and different industries is playing a different role. So for us, we always had digital sales team. They were working quite differently from the marketing team. And we had a marketing team which is responsible more from uh, top of the funnel, traffic to the site and so on. In our case, we're responsible for it, everything. So right from what does the site look and feel like to what happens to our online application forms, the tech stacks behind it and everything. So we're responsible for it all. That is an amazing privilege and an amazing honor, you know. So so therefore, what we've done what is what marketers do best, which is take in the consumer understandings, experiment a whole lot, leverage mm. data, be absolutely disciplined about our funnels. And the team uh, who's working with me on digital sales are absolutely awesome. So on every metric, you know, so of course our budgets are not the highest and therefore the traffic to our site is not the highest in Australia among the banks. However, if you look at the conversions that we see, that is absolutely among the best that we see in the market based on the benchmarking that our vendors and external agencies help us understand. And why is that? So once people come onto the site, um, so even so we've got two parts of the site. We've got the, for example, where we don't know the customer completely where you're not logged in. So that's the unsecure site. And on that, we've got about 75 to 80% personalization now. We've gone up from about 5%. So therefore, we are able to make sure you're seeing the right content and therefore you're able to find the right product that you were looking for. And then you can start your application journey a whole lot more easily. Or if you're there for a service experience where you're looking for just information, you're able to find that a lot more easily. Similarly, on the secure site where we once you've logged in, we are very fortunate to be in an industry where we have a lot of data about you and we can personalize even more. So we've got up to 95% personalization on our site. So that's really helping. And then the team constantly runs experiments. We're constantly optimizing Mm. and seeing where is customer getting stuck and therefore what should we be doing? And we can talk a whole lot, but frankly, each of those changes, and we've run about 400 experiments in the last year or so, each one of them, or I would say most of them, would have helped us improve our conversions, you know, by 7, 10, 15%. And that really helps us. Yeah. And it's a very interesting area because we've actually, I've been having quite a few conversations around experimentation. You mentioned that word. And certainly in terms of UX and UI and design and customer experience on just when they're coming to a site, I think Adam Ballesty, the new CMO at Domino's, talked about how, you know, a small change on his website can result in a two and a half percent change in volume. And that's on big volumes, right? So the design side and the user experience just on a website can have a dramatic impact on sales to what you're talking about. I guess, you know, in terms of the experimentation stuff, I'm already going to get sidelined, but too bad. The experiments you're talking about, it's a really sophisticated version of A-B testing, right? I guess this is what, and are you seeing those similar sort of results when you tweak and, well, you just said it, 7 10% increases just on a tweak on a website. Give me an example. I'll give you an example. We were talking about, you know, what's the role of call to action? What's the role of, like, how many call to action buttons should you have? Where should you have them? 
how do you mm. should you have when you're giving customers information should you show that as lists or should you show them information in tables right each one of those things can result in individually 7 to 15% improvement in conversion on each page that's crazy isn't it it is it is absolutely and then you know what does that mean for whether that page is being consumed a lot more on mobile or is it being consumed a lot more on desktop right and there are differences on that as well you know in you want to signpost and help the customers quickly get to what they're looking for on a mobile it's a much smaller screen whereas they have a lot more willingness to explore things and therefore what does that mean for each so therefore you cannot blindly reapply everything to every product because some products right. like transaction savings have bought a whole lot more on mobile whereas the moment you start getting into a lending product be it credit cards or your home loans most of the transaction is pretty much in a desktop we've got a small team who is running at pace they constantly hypothesizing they constantly testing they're constantly then sharing and reapplying as they see fit to make sure that we are actually making progress we'll get to it a little bit later but it does really point to your observations around the need for marketing to skill out to some of these areas which aren't traditionally classic say brand marketing at least but critical to business impact right so there's a really interesting we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later now we've talked in our last podcast about you are really starting to overhaul and build out your tech stack to get to better customer conversation acquisition retention and so forth tell us a little bit about where you're at with that whole tech stack deployment and what it is doing for the business yeah so we started off with the tech stack with simple leads management where you know how do we help consumers who are interested in having a conversation with us how do we get back to them in a very responsive manner you know we were taking a long time to get back and now right. we've brought that down we're still not at real time but how do we bring it back to you know low 15 minutes and somebody from a branch or a contact centers or a mobile lenders can call them and that saw us delivering pretty big uplifts on conversions on our home loans and other businesses so we've expanded to cross all the products then we started getting into onboarding you know so once you become a customer how do we make sure that you figure out how do you get the most out of the product that you bought and then of course we're getting into all the areas around engagement and retention so engagement would be things like if you want to save how do we provide you the right nudges so that you increase the pace at which you save or the diligence of your saving and what we're seeing is that people who are signing up are now thanks to the nudges are saving at double the rates versus the people who are not saving so right so when you say nudges what is a nudge which is reminding them you know of why saving is important why they set that goal why you know the end point because obviously mm. simple things like when you set a savings goal and you've got an aim in mind it could be a trip to uk it could be uh, you know a big bag that you want to buy it could be the car it could be the home so we definitely see a few different categories in which people are saving but the moment you name something and you're saying you're going after it and if we provide you then helpful reminders on that we're finding it really works wonders to help people get to the goal that they want to that's impressive so when you say that i think you said doubled the savings rate of those that have declared their goals and you are able to nudge them along that's where that in that cohort that's what you're talking about yep extraordinary such there's lots of little things isn't it it's really is there's nothing there's no big major silver bullet it's just lots of incremental steps it's the opposite of uh, death by thousand cuts right yeah good point So when you talked about the tech stack 
Firstly, so where did you land? Where were you before? Uh, and where did you land on, on the components of the tech stack? And we won't get too deep, but I'm really fascinated to see how you compiled your different vendors and so forth and what it looks like. And then I guess it's then about what happens in terms of the resource to deploy this, because you can have a tech stack, as we hear, you can get all the magic, but you still need the ability to actually do. And that's been a big challenge for a lot of brands and marketers is to actually deploy on this stuff. So firstly, the components in your, in your tech stack, and what have you done to deliver it with the resource to do it? Sure. So I think, uh, Paul, when when we started looking into it, it's not like we did, we had components missing. We had some components that were missing, but broadly, by and large, we had most of the technology in the bank. It was just not connected okay. and plugged the right way. So we had multiple instances of the same technology. We had then those instances connected into different channels in a way where we could not kind of track the consumer transaction or interaction data. And therefore, we could not truly orchestrate what the customer wants to the best of our capabilities in a seamless manner. Right. Therefore, a lot of the work that we've done is frankly getting together with the data technology, data and technology teams, because there were different ownerships of the tech stacks as well. Right. Recently. So we had to kind of get to everyone together saying, hey, this is the common vision. This is where we're trying to get to what is getting in the way, and then literally unpick that tech stack and say, mm. you know what, it's the Adobe tech stack for most for marketing, you know, whether it's for our content management or for our targeting, analyzing, et cetera, and campaign management. We've got the sales force in the bank for all our CRM. Right. And we've decided to go with Pega for our uh, orchestration in the future. But while right. we still have Unica in the bank as well. So there's what can we do with what we've got today and how do we simplify it? And then what is the ideal state that we'll get to, you know, which will take us 12 to 18 months and get there. Mm. So that's that's the process, but we're not letting that. And how do we build the, now that's just the technology, but you need to make sure your data is clean and we've made massive progress on getting that going. Then you need to make sure you've got the right model definitions, you've got the right orchestration rules and everything, and you've got then the governance around the whole thing. Because this much of data comes with a huge amount of responsibility to manage it the right way for the customers, you know, um, and respect the the thought behind the law versus the the legal definitions as they are today because they keep on moving. Right. So I think that's where we are heading, and that's what we are doing, and that's why you know I can keep doing this for years, and mm. I'll, I'll still say, God, we could do more. Right. Right. Just as a brief aside, as I mentioned in the setup. You are a bit of a data and analytics geek. That's where you cut your early parts of one. Your career is based on that. So you actually, and it does get us to this point where I'm about to land, but you actually love this stuff, right? And a lot of this is the thing with your observations around what's going on with marketing capabilities at the moment is there is this big sort of swim lane gap and dilemma, if you like, between traditional marketing and classic brand marketing and the ability to do below the line what used to be in the 90s and direct marketing, but below the line. So tell us a little bit, well, firstly, about you still like getting in the weeds on on data and analytics, don't you? So, I mean, you can even build bloody models, as I understand it, which has left me for dust. But what is it about coming from that data and analytics background? You come into marketing. Tell us about the gap that you see. Yeah. And I think it's not just my own background, to be honest, but maybe coming from a company like Procter & Gamble, where the marketers are expected to know their business extremely well, and we are very, very performance-driven. So everything is about numbers. Strategy is based on numbers. Your measurement is based on, you know, what you deliver against that, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my training. 
And then even within Procter & Gamble, I started off with data and analytics. So yes, it is very much me. Now, what I do observe, and this is within ANZ a few years ago, but of course, in the industry by and large, when I talk, um, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they said, oh, you're one of the few marketers who talk numbers and who can actually show what you do. True. But the reality is, why have we come to that place, you know, and why are we here? And the reality is we've got marketers who join marketing because they love creativity, they love advertising. In fact, many of them in university didn't want to do a whole lot of math. You know, they were running right. away from that. And there is that segment. And then there were other marketers who love technology, who've always been digitally savvy and who've got and built their careers in digital and data and so on and so forth. The reality is what we often find is the two groups don't talk to each other very well. And I'm not talking about over here, you know, a digital marketing per se, per se. I'm talking about understanding the business end to end and understanding what it needs to drive acquisition, engagement, retention in your business, which in this industry, of course, the whole funnel is very important. In some industries, just the acquisition is more important. So, so we definitely need that. And if I think about my own journey, it takes a long time before you become an expert, you know. So to be a great creative strategist, a strategic marketer, as we call it in this market, it takes time. You need a certain amount of experience, expertise, and it's rare. It, they're not, they're not easy skills to get, right? Mm. Similarly, if you want to be someone who understands MarTech and who understands data and digital, that has its own depth. Now, usually you join in one area and if you're not consciously rotating across those various disciplines of marketing, you will find yourself at a place where I found myself, where I'd spent 10 years in data and analytics and I had to actually take a demotion to mm -hmm. switch careers and move to marketing. Right. And you felt you needed to do that. Why? What triggered that? I felt because otherwise, I'll, I mean, I have this very healthy fear that I will not be current in my skills. Right. And that led me to, it took a long time, you know, agreeing to a demotion and moving was hard. Mm. You know, being comfortable, say, sorry, I don't understand it, teach it to me is hard. So I felt like, and that, jump when I made, you know, 10 years into my career from a director to a brand manager again was absolutely the best thing I have done. Really, right. But it took me two years of thinking before I did it. Okay. You know, I dragged my feet for a long time. And I see many of our leaders in similar places. They've gone, they build a career in a particular area. They know there's something out there. And this is on both sides. So it's yeah. not, I see enough of the digital guys who want that strategic experience. I see enough of the strategic guys who want the digital and data experience. But how do we enable that? How do we encourage that systematically? I think that's something that we as leaders have to do because the future, the expectations from the future CMOs, or even now from the CMOs, is to be this unicorn who understands and can do everything. Yeah. And it's quite hard to do that. Very. And so I guess this is the, we'll get to your program, your your marketing training master's program. And that's part of what I guess this is about is trying to get your team to be more generalist. But this puts some flesh around the bones here. If you've got someone that's in performance marketing or in specializes in understanding Google search or social and working that side of it um, and lower funnel, how do they, if they're not at the ANZ with the program you've got building out, how and what should they be doing or thinking that says, I need to get beyond my own swim lane and building out a generalist knowledge because you can't be specialist in everything and vice versa with the strategy and brand strategy and 
sort of mainstream communications people. So what's the magic nuance there for people that are thinking about or hearing this, hearing you talk? Look, there are three things personally for me. It always starts with the individual and is the individual curious and what are they doing? Like I've always raised my hand for saying, hey, I don't understand this. Can I do a project? I've got a day job, which is focused on a particular area, but can I do 20% of my time, lean in and actually learn something else on the job? I learn best on the job. So that's what I've done. Mm-hmm. Curiosity. Is it innate or can it be engineered and created? So are, are people who are curious just naturally that way full stop or can you build a culture of curiosity and build it into people who may just be happy being in their swim lane? I'd be an optimist and I would like to go for the second one. You know, I feel you can train yourself to be anything. Most of the people who've, who've not, who are not innately curious, they've not seen the power of that. All they need to do is just discover and, and enjoy the first change and then after that, they definitely open themselves up to more. Okay, sorry, I digress there. But so you were talking about we're getting to what do people not at the ANZ do in terms of the skill build? Yeah, so one is curiosity. Wherever they are, raise your hand and pick up something which is out of your comfort zone and you know in an area that you don't know enough about. Second, in this day and age, there's so many training programs available externally, like you know, and and of all kinds of duration, you know short to proper training, online training, sign up for that if you're not in an organization like ANZ, which gives you that opportunity. And then the third is, of course, uh, at the right time, change your career. Going down and staying within a narrow area is worse for your career than not. For most people, you know, of course, there's a role for experts and there's some, we, we definitely need them. But by and large, you need to move around. Great. Well, so, This leads us into another area in terms of this gap that we're talking about, and that is in this sort of market and media mix modeling. Now, it's interesting when you talk about how, you know, a lot of that is used for the obvious inputs into modeling is, you know, sales data, even climate, what's going on, the temperature in the day and all those sorts of things. But there is some gaps for you even in the models now, and it sort of sits to how do you get an ROI on all that below-the-line behavior you're talking about with customer experience, you know, or even what you're talking about with uh, experimentation, that the activity of tweaking a website and the, the impact that has on business results, that doesn't necessarily get factored into the models at the moment of what's working and what's not. So talk us through a little bit around this because it's a, it's a potentially big driver and in, in issue for industry at large in the next couple of years and how the models work. You know, definitely. So historically, if you look at a lot of our marketing models, they have come from industries like CPG, which have created, you know, a lot of the concepts historically, right? Now it's all changing. Gradually, service and subscriptions and other things are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the revenue for most of the businesses. Financial services is like that. The acquisitions that I deliver within the year are a very tiny part of my total revenue. So if as a marketing team, I need to know that I am spending my money and and my efforts in the right place, I cannot be relying on just media-driven, acquisition-based marketing models and marketing ROI. I need to be looking at things which are looking at the whole gamut of uh, marketing activities from acquisition, engagement, and retention, which means that I need to look at not just media, but of course, the other key business drivers. And I need to be able to look at uh, below the line activities into that mix. Now, if I have further wish list, I would say I also need it all to not just explain the past, but I need to be able to explain the future, you know, so the future predictive. 
most of the work that I have seen externally available, and it's some really good work being done, and you alluded to it, you know, uh, linking media and climate and activities and so on and so forth. So really good work. But I feel like a lot of it is driven for typical historic models, which are where the role of marketing is predominantly just acquisition and the way of delivering that acquisition is largely through media. Yeah. And now you're looking for the next holy grail or the holy grail, which is bringing all those other components into it. Apart from you writing the model yourself, doing the model yourself, which I reckon you probably, you'd have a crack at that, wouldn't you? You reckon if you had the time, you'd have a go at that. But what, so is there progress being made? Do you think people are, is the market more broadly? And, you know, these models, these econometrics models and so forth, there's a lot of heavyweight companies that do this stuff, very smart people. Are they onto this? I think they are onto it, absolutely. And we will see more progress, including, um, you know, with the work that we've been doing. So definitely, I'm I'm quite optimistic about the future in the space. What do you think it will show, Sweeter? Just a hunch. I know that data is not in front of you, but you know, if you talk about sort of mostly primarily media-driven models put into ROI scenarios, when you start to factor in experimentation, website, CX, customer experience, and the way you're communicating in, in time and personalization, what do you reckon that's going to do to where the weighting goes on ROI? Look, I think it'll be quite hard before we can start comparing the ROI comparisons of the marketing activity, which is still doing a lot of work, which is mid to long term to, you know, stuff that you and I talked about earlier around call to actions and lists versus tables and everything, which is the here and the now, right? And good marketing teams, like many of the experts in the industry have have talked about, have to learn to balance. And it's not just the long and short in terms of the media spends and so on and so forth, but where do you spend time as an organization and what capabilities you're building between middle funnel, top funnel versus the engagement, retention mm-hmm. uh, with the customers, you know, the experience of the customers. So so I think all of us as leaders have started rallying towards statements like a brand is as brand does, experience is what defines you, but then what needs to be true and where and how we're spending energy will start reflecting in that. So is it that one is more important than the other? I haven't reached that conclusion. For me, it's more around we need to do more and we need to learn to do more with the same level of discipline that we've historically spent on strategy, that we've mm. historically spent on or built on media planning and everything. We need to get to the same level of rigor as an industry on those other aspects. Well, I can't wait. And I know I'm not going to be allowed, but I'd love to look at the data when you get there. That'll be fascinating to see just how that waiting goes. I mean, it's a, because it, it defines this essentially. Is peak for you for sure. Oh, thank you. All right. I'll hold you to that. So, because it does define this gap that we talked about earlier, because you've got a lot of people, even in CX and personalization, there's a whole bunch of advocates there that think that is the future and it's the only part of the future for a business's growth. And then you have on the other side, your brand and communications people who say, that's kind of essentially the core. It's bringing them together to your point, but we still have really big sectors with powerful sort of roles to play, still feeling like they're the utopian, they're the truth. And it's actually both, right? So it's going to be a how long are we going to wait for this? How long do I have to wait? I think it's happening now. There are, so at least with the ANZ, we've moved a fair number of people who've historically done one part of it into the other sides and vice versa. Mm. And what they're coming up with, the kind of things they're doing, you know, if I put the measurement aside for a moment, do I have the holy grail or not? But am I seeing the capability mix coming together and creating one plus one equal to three? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, so 
Whilst we're just on that media area, there's a couple of things that are interesting for you and your broader, if you go back to reputation, for instance, and what you're trying to do with financial well-being, that messaging you're trying to land, not just with your conventional customers, but with the younger set. And with the younger set, you're trying to land financial well-being and you're getting into gaming and gaming influences to try and land that. So between that and your sense on video formats being the better media advertising to chase down rather than, say, static display. Talk to both of those two things for a brief second. Well, that's a great question, but it is two questions in one. So let me cover each one of them individually. So the younger audience is definitely something which is very critical to our strategy. And uh, I have two young kids in that exactly that age segment as well. So all I can tell you is that there's huge interest in the topic from the uh, millennials. They are quite keen to learn about money. They are very aware of the importance of money and they're actively looking for information on how to be better. And the last two years have driven that even more stronger as a behavior than before. Mm. Now, at present, where we are is our strategy was to reach out to these audiences in the medium or in the place where they're spending a lot of their time. And again, gaming is definitely one of the big areas where a lot of millennials are engaged, you know, and frankly, I would say up to 40 years, 45 years old are engaged. It's not just the teenagers or the college students anymore. Now, what we figured out then is beyond, of course, ad placements and interactive activities, because that's what they're doing. How do you engage with a brand, not just as a video, but actually something fun at the end, leveraging some of the you know, activities that they do in the gaming, their experiences, that has worked really well for us. But mm-hmm. we've also experimented with creating a lot of video content with some amazing gaming influencers where they talk to the audiences, the way they talk about different games where these kids are or these millennials are trying to become better. And with very similar approach, we are talking about ANZ and financial well-being content. We've not gone to the extent where we're saying, hey, we'll have a big presence in metaverse and so on and so forth. We are experimenting with smaller things. I'm sure others are doing even more. But what we are learning is this is working by far better than anything else that we have seen or done so far. And you're able to track. So, you know, that activity, are they following through getting to your site and are you converting or how are you sort of measuring the effect of your activity? Now, that's a great question. We definitely, as an organization, and to connect to your second question as well, but we, as, a, as an organization, we don't really care about impressions a whole lot. We right. do care a lot more about, you know, how many of them are completing the videos, how many of them are then engaging with the brand, how many of them are on our site, how many of them are then, you know, for example, checking their financial well-being scores and so on and so forth. And we've got some pretty tight matrix around a lot of that stuff. And the traffic that we're generating the interactions that we are seeing, the interest and the amount of time that they're spending on that content then is absolutely well ahead of everything that we were expecting from these sources. Now, as I said, there's a connection to your second question on video versus display. Now, historically, we do, we did have an triple M capability largely focused on media, but all that capability was showing us again and again very consistently was that video is five times more effective than anything on display. Right, right. And therefore, historically, we have never spent a whole lot of money on display, well before Mm. all of the attention, learning stuff coming into play. 
And uh, most of our activities, therefore, even in social channels, are a lot more driven towards video and interactive activities versus towards um, display activities. Got it. I'm just going to zip back to the gaming thing for a minute, because if you talk to the market and marketers and brands, there seems to be a sort of a, they chunk out gaming. The market at large is not using it. Like it's underdeployed as an audience. It's a huge audience. It may be difficult to build content and build strategies to engage them, but there's this massive audience and there's a constant conversation around how brands tend to avoid the gaming sector. They'll jump into TikTok, they'll jump into social, but gaming sort of gets underweighted at a market level. Is that groupthink or what's your hypothesis on why this happens? Look, I can't, um, I can't even begin to guess about the rest of the industry. For us, as part of our experiments and partnerships, it was a very deliberate strategy to kind of go and learn in this space. We've done a few things which work. We've done a few things which did not work as well. And we're constantly then saying, okay, what do we want to do more of? Overall, though, if you look at it as an experimentation in total, we are definitely seeing it as a big success. Mm. Well, you did mention, um, you flagged up a little bit earlier about sort of this big move we're seeing, a lot of activity and action around media attention metrics and essentially, you know, this next level of sophistication beyond you start with impressions, which you don't do in the first place. You get to viewability, which is at least a, a signal that the ad has appeared as opposed to may and not have. And then attention starts to talk about the ads appeared under viewability. Was it looked at? Were people actually looking at the ad? And that's the next layer in terms of that media effectiveness and advertising effectiveness quoting, uh, quotient. What's your take on attention, Sweeta? Look, intuitively, it's a very simple concept. So I absolutely agree with the broad theory behind it. I know we'll keep on improving our matrix and measurements as an industry and linking it to a media buying and planning. And I've, I've heard some amazing conversations on your podcast on the same as well, right? So we'll keep becoming better and better. Now, for us as a marketing team, we are always more interested in not just what we are doing in terms of are you seeing the ad and everything, but are you engaging with us afterwards? Because there's very little in finance that I can actually explain all in a 6.15 or a 30-second ad. Mm. A lot of it, what advertising is doing is just making sure that one, you're thinking about us, and second... At the moment of need, you know, 95% of the people are not in the market for a financial product at a time, only 5% are. And also, we often joke among our teams, I mean, likely, that you're more likely to get divorced than you are to change bank accounts. Yeah, right. So we absolutely, there's a role that advertising plays in making sure that, hey, we're almost always top of mind. But there's a bigger role that we need to play that, you know, when you are in that segment, in the market, how do we make sure that you're taking an action? So we're looking at all our work, therefore, to say, did you engage with us? Did you come in and did you try and spend time and learn about financial well-being even if you don't have a product to buy at the moment? Or did you actually go on and click to and, and bought the credit card that you needed right now? Right. So you're defining your channel mix, if you like, by engagement outcome to your own channels. Yep. Interesting. You have the data to do that too. Well, I guess a lot a lot of companies don't have that luxury in some senses. Absolutely. Yeah. So you don't see the need, then you won't be using attention metrics to define channel mix because you're doing that by what you're seeing people come through by channel in, in interaction. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. You did talk about 95.5 and flipping the funnel. So, you know, your top line sense on this, Sweeter, is that 
instead of, well, it gets back to this early point you make, you know, performance marketing, if you're only, or if you're overweighting in performance and looking for action, when only 5% of your market is actually ready to buy or purchase, then there's a lot of waste there. As much as there's talk about waste being on brand and staying, keeping mental availability going, for instance, there's too much waste there. So let's get to targeting. But in some cases, if only 5% of your market is in market, ready to go, there's waste there too. So what do you make of that flipping the funnel notion of 95.5? Look, I think as an industry, we do spend a lot of our dollars and a lot of propositions on people who are not in the market. And that is a good thing to some extent, right? Because even though I'm not in the market, I want to be proud of the brand I'm using. I want to like what that brand is saying. And I want to be, you know, I'm ultimately part of the tribe. I take out my cards and I use those products and I need to know that, hey, I like this business and I like this brand that I'm associated with. So your bigger brand funnel is still doing that job or that top of funnel is still doing that job for you. And then, you know, absolutely, as part of the bottom funnel performance activity, we're constantly looking for the people who are in the market and how do we harvest the data the best way possible to make sure that if we have the right product for them, we choose us. Okay. So what is your split? What's your weighting? So our weighting varies slightly depending on the markets. In markets like uh, New Zealand, where we are the market leader, we would be probably 60-40 uh, preference versus performance. If you look at in the market like Australia, where we are, number four among the big four. We balance it a bit. Again, it varies quite a bit from product to product. So home loans and others will be a lot more top of the funnel and a lot less performance. Credit cards will be a lot more bottom of the funnel. Not So I would say it will be more 40, 60 then. Okay. And did you say preference versus performance? Preference versus how do we drive brand preference versus how do I Building preference. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Because we're just about out of time, let's get to the ANZ's Brand Academy and Marketing Masters programs because this is, I think it's actually a very clever play for talent acquisition and retention, given all the other things we've been talking about today. Where is it at? Where's the Brand Academy? How's it landing? How's it going? And, you know, you've seen that curiosity we talked about earlier. You've seen signs of that in your people. Oh, so both programs, uh, Brand Academy and Marketing Masters, do continue to go from strength to strength. Our employee engagement is pretty high, along with employee satisfaction. And we've seen increases of up to 25% on ANZ is a great place to have a marketing career. I have supports and programs to help me grow. So that's awesome, right? We are definitely within the industry becoming well known for the fact that we are providing these capabilities and you're right that is a big acquisition and engagement tool for us and this is really important for us at a time when there is an industry-wide talent crisis and the skills shortage exists right we are introducing also new components to the program uh, Paul as it matures so we've got a new program happening or which is go live in July on personalization And we've got different levels of modules for it, you know, so if you're a beginner, you just need to understand so that you can talk about it intelligently and connect different pieces versus if you're a practitioner and you actually need to Mm. be working on the tools, you know. So we've got that in play right now. We've just launched a whole program on data and insights, and we've got a lot of positive traction within the marketing audience because a lot of them have worked in marketing. They've done the job, but they've never gone down to understanding every piece of data available within the bank and how can they use it to do their job better you know so it's not just data at a very high level but we're helping them figure out data sources for different kind of business questions when to use what and how so they're all very workshop driven hands-on experiences now we've also introduced new components to the program as it's mature so 
you know, we've got a partnership with AMI now, Australian Marketing Institute, right. uh, and that includes the accreditation of our Brand Academy modules, and we've issued 400 digital batches to the marketing community. That is essentially a certified uh, practitioner accreditation on different topics. And we are now partnering with them to see how do we create an emerging marketers program, which is a lot more focused on the younger junior talent that we've got within the bank so that they can start building skills, but not necessarily go deep in everything, but a little bit of everything so that they can be well-rounded from right from the beginning. And that's mission critical, if you ask me, that those emerging leaders and getting their understanding of, because they tend to, at this stage, I've got a 21-year-old son and, you know, essentially you look at their mindset versus an old bloke like me, everything is digital, but the strategic component, everything is tactical, right? This is, they think that marketing is tactical and it's part of it. So building that out, I reckon that's really, really, really critical. Just down an interest, so you've built a moat around your talent, um, churn. So do you think you're at a better level of churn, the churn rate than your peers and the market at large? All I can say is, Paul, I'm not worried about attrition within my marketing team. Okay. So you're not going to give me a number, but the number's good. Yeah. It's not come up internally, like in any of our conversations, because we're not seeing that. Mm. There are certain other parts of my marketing function, you know, whether it's data or some of the data scientists engineering, or you look at the engineering talent, you know, I've got challenges there, but I've not got it in pure marketing. Okay. The economy and the market outlook and what this means for brands, marketing, media, and even your own activities is the the talk around, you know, contraction or slowdown. Is it meaning you're looking at different levers and changing what you do in the mix as, as things may slow down? Look, I think absolutely. It will definitely drive changes. And uh, having been in regional and global roles with the different markets, uh, working in markets like Japan, which has been in recession for a long time. Mm. We definitely needed to approach our insights, our media planning and everything quite differently. And I know it'll be different. What, How would it be exactly different? I think it'll vary a fair bit. And one of the things we often talk about in banking is it's easy to lend money. It's harder to get it back. And, right. and therefore, it'll drive a lot more planning, um, discipline around you know, where we spend. How do we think about every product from a transaction savings account, be it that will play a different role in a consumer's life versus credit cards and lending and home loans. And they'll all they'll have all have implications at a quite different level. So net net, yes, there will be differences. As always, marketers need to be laser focused on the consumers, their insights, what are the puts and calls the consumers are making when they think about their total budget and then help them make the right choices for the businesses and themselves. So two so things. I'm giving a general answer. Um, yes, sir. No, no, but I, I'm about to drill down and we'll see how I go with it. Wish me luck. The temptation when this happens at a market level is to either reduce the budgets and marketing budgets. And I know in our, if I recall correctly in our last podcast, you've managed to convince your broader leadership team and the company more broadly that marketing is not a cost, it's an investment, it has a payback. So I'm not sure how ring-fenced your budgets will be if we see a, a sort of a contraction. But secondly. The temptation is to go short, is to go tactical and try and drive, you know, much more short-term activity when things are sort of on the slide, on the down. What do you think is going to happen on those two fronts? So I think for us, we recently had a conversation with the board and the board definitely continues to think about marketing as an investment and wants to invest more. Okay. So that's a positive. That said, 
it always comes with responsibility that you're spending in the right products. So we're having a lot of conversations on what do we anticipate in different product category, as I talked about, and therefore where and how will we like to invest the money. So the money amount is not the problem. It's a discipline that will require in making sure that we're spending it the right way. Got it. And because we're out of time, we'll have to have another podcast where I ask you, where are you spending the money? What is your new mix? But that will have to wait. Sweden Mayra, great to talk per usual, great perspectives, uh, insightful and um, for the industry and your team. Stay safe. Thanks for joining. Look forward to the follow-up soon. Thanks, Thank Sweden. you, Paul. A pleasure to be here. Love the freewheeling conversation. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.